0: It's go time! Crazy football in the Canadian Football League last week and we've got to get to it pretty quick. Welcome everyone to 3rd Down Gamble, Don Sharpen along with Heath Graham. We had some massive games last week and games that uh, really provided some interesting surprises. First, let's get to the Lions and the Blue Bombers. The battle for first, technically not all the way to first, but practically winner gets first. What happened to the Lions in the second half? Where did they go?
1: I think we have to give some credit to Richie Hall. We often criticize him for his bend, don't break defense. The... BC Lions' offense in the first half sliced and diced. Vernon Adams completed 16 of 17 passes, seemed to do no wrong. And then that defense stepped up in the second half, took the game away from Vernon Adams, and a wild final two and a half minutes in this one, plus overtime. It was a really exciting game. So I I think a lot of that credit goes to the Winnipeg defense for playing one of their best halves of the season.
0: The Blue Bombers' defense has nothing to hang its head over. Uh, Even though they had a rough first half, they certainly came up and did well in the second half. My concern for the BC Lions is what were they thinking going through that third and especially the fourth quarter? Yes, they did stymie the Blue Bombers twice with turnovers deep in their own zone, but you cannot live by that. You're going to see the Blue Bombers come at you again. What are you going to do to stop them? The other side of the equation, 43 yards of offense in the second half until the final play of the game where they hit Dominique Grimes on a deep route. And we'll get to that in a minute. But where does that thinking go? How do you go from nearly 300 yards in the first half to almost nothing in the second?
1: That's a real tough one to figure out. We know these two teams have probably two of the best, if not the two best receiving cores in the entire CFL. We saw Vernon Adams' complete passes at will in that first half and just the the inability to complete in the second. I don't know if they felt overconfident that they had this game more in hand. It seemed Winnipeg was playing from behind throughout. They would get back to within three points, then all of a sudden they're back down by 10 and they'd get within seven points and they'd get back down. BC had control offensively and, and on the scoreboard as a whole. Winnipeg just does not panic and seems to have that ability to overcome mistakes, stay calm and and continue to do what they believe in. BC maybe went a little bit away from what they believed
0: in early on. The lions, I know listening to the, the post game, especially Rick Campbell's thoughts on it, he could have swore a blue streak if he had the opportunity, but he's much more reserved than that. He said that the team in that locker room was very distressed, very upset. The good thing about that is that it matters they care and that they're trying to come to terms with it. The bad thing about that is what in the world were you doing that you would even get to overtime in that football game? You knew what the Bombers are capable of. You knew what had worked in the first half. And yes, Winnipeg dialed up blitzes in that second half again and again and again. There are ways to beat a blitz. Why wasn't Jordan McSimmick scheming against that once he recognized this was the pattern happening?
1: Games are won or lost on who makes the adjustments. And as I said, it looks like Winnipeg really made some adjustments and BC did not make the changes to combat what Winnipeg was doing.
0: We talk about halftime adjustments. We talk about what are team's trying to do that they learned from the first half. Typically that comes out in halftime adjustments. The Lions looked like they literally thought the game, maybe they didn't, but it just seemed from afar that they had the game. The Bombers, even though they threatened twice, they turned the ball over deep. Zach Kolaris had given it up twice. That was enough for BC to say to themselves, okay, that's good. We're, we're still gonna manage this and we're gonna be fine. It comes down to a last play of the game pass to Dominique Rimes, who catches the ball off of a bit of a juggle and then makes his move down the field to try to score. Uh, I know Rhymes is thinking, if I score, we win. But in your universe, you have to be also aware that the probability of you making it all the way is slim, given that there are three backers coming after you. Why doesn't he... As he hits the 30-yard line, he must see a clock ahead of him. Hit the dirt. Get down before the clock runs out.
1: There was a lot of variables in that final play, and I'm going to give Dominic Rhimes a bit of a pass on this one. When the ball was snapped from the Lions' own 40-yard line, there was eight seconds left. Vernon Adams, in that eight seconds, had to take a couple steps back, throw a 20-yard pass to Rhimes to the Bombers' 50-yard line. It's a contested catch in that the defensive back was also there. The ball was bobbled. Rhymes comes down with it and starts to run. How is he keeping track of how many seconds have ticked off at that point? Then he runs to the 30-yard line and breaks a tackle. Again, that takes up a little bit more time. If he slid too early, if he goes down too early, he leaves Sean White a very lengthy field goal for the win. If he goes down too late all the time's off the clock and it doesn't matter anyway. I think Rhymes made the right decision in trying to score based on where they were when that play started. Had they started on Winnipeg's side of the field, it would be more likely that he would have the sense to go down right away. But I think given all of the circumstances, it was a lot to ask for him to make the catch, get a certain amount of yards for a sure field goal and go down to stop the clock.
0: I'm going to disagree with you. He had every opportunity to catch the ball. Yes, it was contested. Yes, he had to make a great catch. But then after that, once you do that, where is the coaching in the last 10 seconds? Where, where have you been in practices where you have never thought about this? We, we need a catch. You've got to get down to the ground. How is that not part of the huddle disco- uh, d- discovery or the conversation that's going on amongst the players? Anyone who catches the ball, you're on Winnipeg side of the field, get down right now. The other thing, and this is not too often talked about, but it was brought up to me and I totally agreed with the th- sentiment. The other thing he could have done as he was lumbering towards the goal line, kick the ball into the end zone and get the single.
1: That would have been quite the play and, and, and could have done it. Now, when he caught the ball, he was at the 50-yard line. If he goes down immediately, that becomes a 57, 58-yard field goal for the win. That's asking a lot. They are in a dome stadium Perfect kicking conditions, but still that's a lot to ask. As I said, I, I, I'm going to tend to defend Dominic Rhymes in this one. I think he was left in a tough situation. Now, if he doesn't break that second t- tackle attempt by Cramdy, Cramdy could have still held him up long enough to run out the clock as well. So that comes into play and and Winnipeg has a tendency on defense often to try to strip the ball as opposed to just go right for the tackle. So he missed outright. He did, um, Dominic Rimes did a great job of of breaking that tackle and continuing. He saw nothing but green ahead of him. He was going for that goal line. In
0: 1994, and I know this is a reach, the Streetport Pirates are trailing the Toronto Argonauts in Toronto. Ball is thrown, caught, the receiver goes to ground, sets up a 50-yard-plus field goal, they make it, they win. Rhymes had that same opportunity. I'm not necessarily saying it's Rhymes' fault, but how is it that in a practice session you don't think of this and say, look, if you ever get caught in this situation and we've got 10 seconds or less, be cognizant of the clock, take a look at it. At the 30-yard line, there were still two seconds left. So he had enough time to get down and it would have been fine, even at the 30s. That's 20 yards beyond where he caught the ball. There was time for him to, to actually grab, go, and go, and get down. Didn't do it. The Kicking it in the end zone, that's not necessarily an American's forte. It's not something they do down there at all. I'll cut him a ton of slack on that. Had it been a Canadian receiver, we might have seen a different. At we Antwi, been on the receiving end, we may have seen a different result. I found it very fascinating that nothing... Came of that play ultimately because rhymes in his mind, I would say, felt touchdown or we were in overtime. Now, in that football game, and this came up on X, the waggle has come under increased scrutiny, and this was the MarkCast. This is uh, they've been on our program, uh, huge followers of the CFL. They pointed out on several occasions in that football game that the Blue Bombers, with their waggle, had run either Dalton Schoen or Nick Dembski in the waggle along the right side of the line. But by the time they crossed over, the ball had not been snapped. The ball actually snaps after they pretty much have stepped two yards downfield. Why is it that the, I'm not saying the Blue Bombers get away with this, although they did in this game. But why is it that there's so much allowance for this. This, to me, is ridiculous. We talked about getting rid of the sleeper play years ago, and it happened in 1961. This is getting close to that, where you're actually lining up or having your offensive team over the line of scrimmage when you start the play. The waggle has got to be changed. This attitude that, oh, so long as they're in the neutral zone, it's fine. No, 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 no. Got to be behind the line of scrimmage. End of story.
1: I don't want to see the waggle go away. I like that part of the game. It's what makes us different from the NFL having that unlimited motion. I've been to games in person and watched games on TV where it seems like on just about every play, somebody appears to be offside and it's not called. Now, I believe, and correct me if I'm mistaken, but I believe the rule is as long as the the body hasn't completely crossed the line of scrimmage, they're still considered onside. So much like a quarterback throwing the ball, as long as he's got his pinky toe behind that line of scrimmage, he can throw the ball forward. It's a a similar situation, and what that creates is a gray area and an uncertainty by those officials watching the line. The best way, in my opinion, to combat that would be that they cannot break the plane of the line of scrimmage at all before the ball is snapped. Then you're not watching what part of them is still behind the line. If any, you're not looking at giving them that one yard neutral zone. And it is very tough to call because it's such a timing issue of determining when the center moves begins to move that ball backwards. Is that all it takes is as soon as the ball starts to move backwards, they can be forward. It's a lot of moving parts to keep an eye on.
0: Agreed. Line judges have a very difficult situation and it's tough to manage because you're at best, 24 yards away, 30 yards away, and at worst, maybe 40 yards away to, to see this because you're on opposite sides of the field. The problem that I have with it, and it's I know somebody with the Rough Rider Radio Network called this a conspiracy because the Blue Bombers were getting all the calls. I'm not going there. What It happens, as you say, with every team. I just think it needs to be negated. And one of the things that you could do very quickly is because the booth right now has the right to determine who went procedure or offside on play here you want proof in the pudding of what the booth can do watch for that they can slow it down and go oop i'm sorry you number 10 or you number 81 or you number 43 went offside with your waggle i th- this is different than motion in the backfield where receivers run back and forth that is beautiful part of the Canadian game. But the waggle has always bothered me because there is this gray area that becomes too gray. It really becomes so muddied that nobody seems to know what the rule is. And when a receiver, they, they literally stop it in, in this video, and you see Dembski's behind the BC Lions line when the ball is snapped. I know you're saying, how could anyone miss that? It does happen. We're all human. We, we all make mistakes. But that that to me is an, an emblematic or, or even symptomatic of the problem. It's, it's both.
1: I guess you run into the danger of overanalyzing plays as well. We see it in, in every sport. There are baseball fans that are lobbying for an automatic balls and strikes umpire as opposed to a person back there. We see NHL offside reviews. We see soccer VAR reviews that are looking for this minuscule offside even a a fraction of a skate blade over that line on, on a offside play in hockey, there needs to be a refinement and an understanding. And I don't necessarily think that having video review on every play is the right way to go. But like I said, I, I think maybe if you make the line of scrimmage like the goal line, that as soon as you break the plane, you're, you're into that offensive zone, into that offside zone is the better way than having to be fully engaged over that line for it to be a penalty.
0: I would rather have the receivers run sideways as much as they want, but not press the line of scrimmage and gain an unfair advantage. That to me, we we want offense. Yes. We want more offense. Yes. But that is not the way to do it. There are better ways to make the game more exciting and, Having that where people are up in arms over whether or not that should have been a foul or not is not the way to engender good spirit about trying to get more offense. One of the things that the CFL has done is worked hard on trying to get more scoring into the league. One of the things that has happened, though, that I think is contra to that uh, idea is that we're seeing fewer and fewer plays per game. In 2016, we had 155 plays a game. This year to this point, we're averaging 145. That's 10 less plays a game. Now they keep moving single points up by five yards. They move the kickoffs back by five yards. They're trying to shorten this field as much as possible for the offense to score. Enough with that. Figure out why we can't have more plays. Again, let's get a 32-second clock in.
1: I agree. I I believe that losing 10 plays per game is more of a clock management issue than anything else. You don't see as much hurry-up offense as, as we used to either. So there's a little bit of a coaching philosophy change, but more so it's the officiating crews getting the game clock started for
0: the next snap. They keep trying to engender scoring by... Starting with the ball further up the field. And if you want to keep moving the ball up the field, why not just shrink the size of the field? Why not just make it 90 yards and and make each end zone 30 yards or something like that? Do things to make the offense better. There's just no need for this delay tactic. And I love Mike O'Shea. I think he's a great coach, but he is the worst at slowing the game down to a crawl. I I think this has to stop at 32 or 34, whatever second clock you want to use. Some people want 30. Enough is enough. It's just got to be hard and fast and keep moving.
1: Some would argue if you want to increase scoring, increase forward motion by receivers and give them a little bit of extra zone to to get that waggle
0: working in their advantage. Then let's bring back the sleeper play. Now, in Saskatchewan, we know that the Rough Riders took it on the chin. Mike Gibson was actually the... Play caller, the offensive coordinator that night for the Hamilton Tiger Cats. This was a sort of an aside note at the beginning of the football game. And he's the one that calls the game that the Tiger Cats go up and down the field against the Rough Riders. Mike Gibson typically throughout his career has been an offensive backs coach, uh, he's been a line coach, he has done a little bit of offensive game strategy and coordination some years ago, but it's been a while. What did you think of that?
1: What a great audition to get thrown into this situation and to come out with a win and with a solid offensive performance. That sets him up well to be in consideration for offensive coordinator positions as they open up throughout the CFL.
0: That's what I kind of thought. If you wanted an audition tape, my goodness, have you got one. Now he's been in coaching for quite a long time. He may be very content as to where he is and how this is going to play out. Yes, we have more talent in the coaching pool in the CFL than maybe most people recognize.
1: Now, Mike Gibson didn't completely rewrite the Hamilton Tiger Cats offensive playbook over the course of a couple of hours when he got notification he was going to be calling this game. That being said, he still needs to strategically choose the right plays at the right times. And that is where he came shining through.
0: Your pick, Ottawa out of the crossover chase or the Rough Riders losing five in a row? Which do you want to go to first?
1: Let's go crossover. Um, The
0: playoff picture is getting a little bit more finalized here. So let's start there. All right. So we know with Ottawa being out of the crossover chase to get into the Western playoff picture, that leaves the West as basically two races, Saskatchewan and Calgary, and that is a battle for third. The other race is for first place, although Winnipeg has definitely got a step over the BC lines in terms of who could finish first. In the east, the battle is Montreal or Hamilton and who gets that home playoff date. Ottawa, with them out of the mix, it does eliminate one more team. We saw two teams get eliminated on the weekend. That means for the Red Blacks, they're playing out the string, and this is for jobs and and positions in 2024 one question to you is there a thought that Kahari Jones could be in trouble because that offense is just getting worse and worse
1: maybe we'll see Mike Gibson as the offensive coordinator for the Ottawa Redblacks next season based on his performance i absolutely believe that Kahari Jones's offensive coordinator position is at risk the offense has really tailed off for the Redblacks in the second half of the season that's where the struggles continue. They have some decisions to make at quarterback as well. Nick Arbuckle once again came in in relief of Dustin Crum, but did not do much to solidify himself as somebody in consideration for a starting job in the CFL either. It, it should be Dustin Crum or Terrell Pigram for the rest of the season for the Ottawa Red Blacks to see what they have in these young quarterbacks. Kahari Jones isn't a poor offensive coordinator by any means. He's had success in this league, but does not seem to be the right fit at this point in time for the Red Blacks.
0: For Kahari Jones, he's done well with Vernon Adams Jr. He's done well in BC prior to that, but he seems to have had veteran quarterbacks. Offense is very retracted, and Crum, now that everyone's spying him, isn't using his legs anymore to gain first downs. So that means they have to rely on the pass. Well, at some point, that entire offensive package has got to be available to him to let him flex and see what he can do with it. One player that has to be frustrated
1: with this Ottawa offense has to be Jalen Acklin. He should be a thousand yard receiver in this league. He should be a guy that is putting up big numbers game in and game out. And it's quite often that he's finishing the night with two catches, three catches, a player of that caliber needs to be a big part of this offense. And right now they're just not able to get him the ball often enough.
0: Is it a question for Acklin that they need somebody else to help offset the coverage on him? Somebody that can also take the lid off so that there's the defense has to pay attention to two receivers. Because right now it seems quite apparent that Acklin gets doubled almost everywhere he goes. And then you've got what?
1: That's a great point, and I think there's some truth behind that as well. When you're a a one-weapon team, it's hard to make the plays when you're double-teamed on every single pass attempt coming your way.
0: The Saskatchewan Rough Riders have lost five in a row, and for the second year in a row, Labor Day on, they have done nothing. And there's now more than just a murmur. There is now editorial content coming out from Three Down Nation and other venues as well, that Craig Dickinson should have been fired after that game and that the Riders try something else to get into the playoffs.
1: There's not enough games left in this season to warrant a head coaching change in in Saskatchewan. They've got two regular season games left at this point. They are still fighting for a playoff spot. So how successful can they be bringing in a new head coach at this point in time? I, I just don't see it. I agree there are definitely some problems with the coaching of the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. The second half of the season both last year and this year have been abysmal. Changes do need to be made. The off season seems like the more opportune time to do that than right now. I, I just don't see who steps in at this point with a couple of games left that's going to make that big of a difference.
0: I don't think in terms of tactics or in terms of scheme that much can be changed, but maybe in terms of attitude. Because whether you think so or not, what happened on Saturday night in Craig Dickinson's own words was an embarrassment. Well, if you're the coach and you're saying this is an embarrassment, who does that reflect on? And the other thing that he said was that this team lost its confidence when it got blown out in Winnipeg. Well, guess what? You haven't won in Winnipeg since you've been head coach of the Rough Riders.
1: That would fall on the the coaching staff. I'm going to be a little bit harsh on Craig Dickinson here, but oftentimes he seems to try to find the excuse. And this is now a month beyond the Banjo Bowl that you're still blaming that game for the loss of confidence. You've had four weeks to rebuild that confidence, and what have you done with it? This is not the first time that we have questioned his leadership in that locker room. There was controversy last year with, with players suspension, suspended and being cut from the team. There was discipline issues with penalties being called on the sideline for players that weren't even dressed in the game. There's a lot of things that have happened with this Rough Riders team with Craig Dickinson at the helm that raises questions about how well run and how disciplined this team is.
0: It's not an operations cap issue if they got rid of him after the game against Hamilton. It's a question in, to me into a lot of people's minds, where are you going to get the spark? Because if this guy isn't leading you, then what is he doing there? And that's ultimately his, his responsibility. Jeremy O'Day, you could see on the sideline watching the football game. I was at the stadium. He was pacing up and down the sideline, moving in through the player's bench I've never seen him so stoked. If the GM is that upset, I know he's weighing the value of doing X or Y, but it might've been worth it just to take a flyer and get rid of him and see what happens. Because what's the alternative?
1: The alternative is they either sneak into a playoff spot or they continue to spiral and miss the playoffs. I don't see them making noise in the playoffs if they do end up as the number three seed in the West. It's a... a, tall task ahead of any team coming in as the three seed to get through BC and Winnipeg in their home stadiums. If there's ever a game where a team should be motivated, this is one of them. They've got a playoff spot on the line. They're honoring one of the greats of all time in the CFL in George Reed. There's a lot of things going on at the stadium and in the lead up to this game that should have had everybody fully motivated to go out and put on a peak performance
0: and it was not.
1: Second down.
0: Let's look back at the week that was in the Canadian Football League starting in Toronto with the Edmonton Elks taking on the Toronto Argonauts. The Elks who, under Chris Jones, was almost getting to 500 as a coach. He's 61 and 62 heading into that game. So he was... On his way back, Ryan did win, he 32-14 so far in his head coaching career. Again, Toronto looked strong from the start. Edmonton never got on track. The one saving grace, that impossible scramble and touchdown pass from Trey Ford that provided spark for everybody in the football world. But beyond that, the Elks were no match and lose 35-12. to 12.
1: The Toronto Argonauts, another team that was celebrating a lot this week they were celebrating the 150th anniversary of the Argonauts as a professional franchise exciting game and great to see so many of the legends of the game return for the Argonauts <laughs> one thing that I think often gets overlooked is the kick returners they have had in their history and we saw an opening ceremony where Rocket Ishmael Michael Pinball Clemens and Chad Owens all received ceremonial kicks and wow, what a glut of kick return talent. And they now also have Javon Leek in the mix, who is lighting things up this year.
0: Toronto jumps out to a 10-1 lead. The Elks actually fight back in the second quarter, make it closer, but then get shut out in the third quarter, pick up only one in the fourth as the Argos run away with it. For Trey Ford, 19-31, 220 yards. Two interceptions, but that amazing <laughs> touchdown pass that he threw to uh, Gavin Cobb, that that will be replayed on YouTube forever. And on the other side, Chad Kelly, again, just does what he needs to do. 11-16, doesn't throw any touchdowns, but the team just scores them with points pirate Cameron Dukes, in this case, scoring two. This isn't the first highlight reel
1: scramble that we've seen from Trey Ford this season, either. He is so much fun to watch, and if they ever get all of the pieces in place to help him be successful, look out. The offensive line let some of that pass rush get through and and forced him to scramble, but he is so quick and elusive that he can make himself get back to, uh, uh, to planting his feet and throwing the ball down the field, as we saw on that touchdown. The Argonauts' offense was different than what we've seen in the past as well. AJ let 65 yards on 14 carries, not the dominant force that we have seen in some of these other games. You mentioned Cameron Dukes with the touchdown rushes, but Chad Kelly protects the ball, moves the team down the field, and gets the points when they need them, and that defense is really something to watch for the the Argonauts as well. They're really in a unprecedented territory for them with their their record this season. I don't see anybody knocking them off in the playoffs in the East.
0: Huge play. Uh, Wenton McManus gets his second return for touchdown off of an interception. 83 yards this time he romps. Of course, when your defense is scoring points for you like the Alouettes defense has been doing, it makes it a lot easier for the offense. For Edmonton, that eliminated them from the playoff hunt. They were in tough to begin with. However... They still have something to say about what goes on in the East, given that they play the Montreal Alouettes coming up. The late game on Friday was the game everyone was looking for. Mike O'Shea taking his Winnipeg Blue Bombers into British Columbia to take on Rick Campbell's BC Lions. O'Shea, 14-7 overall as a head coach against the Lions. For Campbell, just 7-12 and against the Blue Bombers. And a huge fourth quarter for Winnipeg. In the sense that they got a late touchdown <laughs> and a field goal to come back and tie the game and then get the touchdown and two point convert to win it in overtime in a game that at halftime, with BC ahead 20 to 10, many began to wonder if the Lions had control of this game.
1: So, we talked about the playoff scenario in the West. With Winnipeg's win, the magic number for them is one. So, that is a combination of either one Bombers win in their final two games or one Lions loss in their final two will wrap up first place in the West for the Bombers. That's what this game had on the line. They were coming into it with identical records. They had each won a game against each other. This was the rubber match to decide it all. BC came out in control of this one. Uh, but as I alluded to earlier, Winnipeg just does not panic when they make a mistake. If they start to eliminate some of those mistakes, and we've seen several from Zach Kolaris over the last few games with interceptions and fumbles, if he cleans that up, they are going to be very tough to beat.
0: He threw an interception, had two fumbles, both those fumbles in the fourth quarter. Kolaris, 31 of 41 overall for 389 yards, that interception that I mentioned, and two touchdown passes. Vernon Adams Jr., 19 of 33 for 352 yards and one touchdown. Dominique Rimes, of course, he's the one that gets the circle around him, but he had a decent day. Five catches for 107 yards along a 65, that being the last play of the regulation. Javon Katoy again, breaks down the sideline, scores another touchdown, something the Lions have been able to capitalize on quite a bit. On the flip side, I've been watching Dalton Schoen get beat up all year. He still guts it out. Still has five catches for 86 yards. But he took a tremendous beating against the Lions and finally just couldn't be on the field at the end of the game. Unsubstantiated claims are that it was concussion protocol for a helmet-to-helmet hit.
1: And fortunately for Winnipeg, they are going into a bye week this week. So that'll give him a little bit extra time to recover. They also have that opportunity to clinch first place in the West, which would give them another bye in the playoffs. So a lot riding on opportunities to give Dalton Schoen a chance to recover. Zach Klairs completed passes to nine different receivers in this one. The return of Janarian Grant was huge for Winnipeg. Not only did he stabilize that kick return game, he was also on the receiving end of a Zach Claris pass for a touchdown. So great to see the Bombers mix Janarian Grant in. And another dominant performance for Brady Oliveira, 150 yards combined between receiving and rushing. So a, a big game for him as well.
0: The Lions defense had no answer for that short roll to the right that the Winnipeg that the Winnipeg Blue Bombers run, where Calaris runs to his right and then has a pick of three receivers down the field. The Lions just didn't seem to know what to do with it, and Winnipeg just destroyed them with it.
1: That led to the Janarian Grant touchdown. It led to the Drew Wolitarski touchdown. It led to the two-point convert to Kenny Lawler. A real tough situation to cover when you have that many weapons and and skilled receivers rolling out that direction for Zach Kolaris.
0: For the Lions, as you mentioned, they have to win out now to Finish first, tall order given that Winnipeg just needs one more. A big crowd in BC. They saw a great game for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers. As you talked about in the outset, they don't seem to panic. They find a way. And although this game took a lot out of them, they were still standing at the end of it. Winnipeg's defense sacked Vernon Adams six times, which was a big night for them. Willie Jefferson
1: hadn't had a sack in several games. Finally picked up another one and a couple of knockdowns.
0: So he's rounding into form here for the playoff push. Move to Saturday, the only Saturday game. And it's Hamilton and Saskatchewan. Saskatchewan, of course, honoring the memory of George Reed. They had a fantastic pregame uh, with a video tribute and also his family speaking. It was wonderful to see the 2013 Grey Cup champions were there. And that's about the only thing that went right. The rest of the night was about the... Hamilton Tiger Cats and they win going away with a 38-13 victory. The one little nugget that can be pointed to in this football game is with 34 seconds left in the first half. Jamal Morrow runs for a touchdown. The only touchdown the Rough Riders scored in.
1: A nice tribute to the great George Reed. Bo Levi Mitchell returned to the lineup for the Hamilton Tiger Cats. He was used sparingly, but came in, completed four of six passes, 129 yards and a touchdown. Great to see him back in the lineup and that will bode well for the Tiger Cats on their playoff push.
0: They got everything they wanted in terms of Bo Levi Mitchell. He looked, settled in the pocket. He looked like he knew what he wanted to do with the offense when he had the opportunity. That that 88-yard pass that he threw to Tim White was massive. It flipped the field immediately. He did get caught for a safety touch on an intentional grounding call, but that's about the only thing he did wrong all night. And then Matthew Schiltz come in comes in and just slices and just tears apart that Rough Rider secondary. And the the fitting moment in this whole football game is in the last drive of the game by the Tiger Cats. Schiltz goes around the left side, meets up with Derek Moncrief and literally runs him over. It said in a nutshell who was motivated to win that football game and who was not. It
1: certainly did. And a good
0: problem for the Tiger
1: Cats to have is three quarterbacks that seem to be rounding into form. The Saskatchewan Roughriders, on the other hand, Jake Doligella and Mason Fine both saw some game action. What does Saskatchewan look to do at quarterback? Mason Fine came in, completed two of four. Mason Fine goes two of four for 25 yards and an interception Jake Dolagala, 16 of 25 for 154 yards, no touchdowns, no interceptions. Again, not forcing the ball down the field at
0: all. Their longest completion of the night was only for 18 yards. Bo Levi Mitchell, four of six for 129 yards. Matthew Schultz, 16 of 19 for 271. It was impressive. Even James Butler goes 25 carries for 107 yards. To be fair, Jamal Morrow had a great night. 18 carries for 120 yards for the Rough Riders. Beyond that first safety touch, the Riders just looked lifeless. Even though they get that late touchdown in the first half with Morrow's run, they come out in the third quarter and do nothing. And the Tiger Cats literally just dominate them the rest of the way. If the Riders
1: fail to make the playoffs, they're going to look back on the failed opportunities that they've had in the second half of the season. It's It's not often that you've got a Calgary Stampeders team sitting with four wins this late in the season. You've had the opportunity to wrap up that playoff spot and time and again, you're just letting it slip away and
0: continuing to give the Stampeders life. They just don't seem to have whatever it takes. And if it was a case where they lost their confidence in Winnipeg, then this coaching from Greg Dickinson has just got to be ended because there's no way on this lovely earth that anybody is going to stop at that point and say, well, that's where our season ended. We move to Monday and Thanksgiving Monday here in Canada and the Montreal Alouettes traditionally hosts on that day are good hosts to their fans, bad hosts to their guests, As they, from start to finish, dominate the Ottawa Red Blacks 29-3. The Red Blacks getting a consolation field goal at the end of the game. Some debated, do you go for a touchdown? You're third and two inside the 10-yard line. I like the decision. Get the goose egg out of the way. You're not winning anyway.
1: It was going to be a really tall task for the Red Blacks to get three more touchdowns and two-point converts to get them back into this game. They were looking at this point to not be shut out. I agree. I think that was some confidence-building points. If they got stuffed on a third and two, the likelihood of them getting any points for the rest of the game was going to be pretty slim. So Montreal, it was a a rainy day. The Alouettes came to play, and, and we talked about the Saskatchewan Rough Riders coming out listless with something still to play for. Ottawa was still in playoff contention as well with that Rough Riders loss. They came out flat and are now eliminated from playoff contention.
0: Montreal used the combination of five different people, including Caleb Evans, quarterback, to go for 100 yards of rushing. Cody Fajardo goes 28 of 32, which is just unreal for 272 yards, an interception, and a touchdown. The interception is when he gets hit, and the ball flutters into a a Brandon Dandridge's hands. Other side of the equation, Dustin Crum, 5 of 13 for 72 yards in three and a half quarters of play. Another Nick Arbuckle sighting, 9 of 13 for 90 yards. He was the one who led them down the field to get their three points. Again, Tyrese Bavaret for the Montreal Alouettes provides a touchdown score, and the Lemonator... Sean Lemon, who had recovered a fumble and take it in for a touchdown last week against Ottawa, this time gets his 100th sack.
1: If the Montreal Alouettes are going to have playoff
0: success, that defense is going to be a
1: huge, huge part of it. Yes, Cody Fajardo had 28 completions, but again, averaging less than 10 yards per completion, not pushing the ball down the field to that same extent, the defense continues to step up and and really take control of these games only allowing three points. And that was a late three points is a, a
0: solid performance for that Alouette's defense. 180 yards of net offense for the Ottawa Red Blacks. That's not going to win you many games. 389 by comparison for the Alouettes kind of indicates to you how this game went. Montreal was able to get to Crum, able to sack him. Ottawa's Offensive line, as strong as it is, has been guilty of a lot of sacks this year, which is a bit of a surprise, and that may be necessitating a coaching change there. That loss eliminates the Red Blacks. The Alouettes still hold a stranglehold on second place in the East, but of course, the hottest team in football right now is the Hamilton Tiger Cats, and they're charging. some big games coming up in the CFL this weekend and of course playoff implications abound the first game of the set the opener on Friday the BC Lions in Hamilton to take on the Tiger Cats Tiger Cats as we finished second down hottest team in football the BC Lions just had a devastating loss to the Winnipeg Blue Bombers what's their mindset going into Hamilton who Still eyes second place in a shorter porch to get to the Grey Cup.
1: This is an important game for both teams. BC needs the win to have any hope of finishing first in the West. As we know, the magic number is one. They cannot afford to drop a game. With Montreal winning last week, the Tiger Cats remain one game behind them in the standing. So it's a must win for Hamilton as well to have any chance at hosting a home playoff date. The difference maker in this one is going to be how much Bo by Mitchell do we see for the Hamilton Tiger Cats. We just don't know yet at this point if he's going to come in for one series or if they are going to be comfortable enough to give him the ball more frequently. I they tend to take the Lions because of what they're left playing for. It's a, a bit of an uphill climb for the Tiger Cats to push their way into second place. I think I'm going to take the Lions on the road for this one.
0: I'm going to go the other way. I'm going to take the Hamilton Tiger Cats. in part that Bo Levi Mitchell is going to be available and he may play an entire first half. The other part that I like about this is that Hamilton went into BC a few weeks ago and beat the Lions in British Columbia. If Hamilton shows what they showed against Saskatchewan if BC hasn't recovered from what happened to them in Vancouver then I'm with the Tiger Cats all the way not only to upset on the spread but win the game outright the second game is in Calgary on Friday night and it is a playoff game for all intents and purposes If the Stampeders want to be in the playoffs, they have to win this football game. If Saskatchewan wants to clinch, they have to be winners of this game. Calgary goes into the game at three and a half point favorites. At home, the Stamps are coming off a bye. Craig Dickinson says that this is a short week. It's only six days for the Rough Riders. Never heard that one before. Riders stunk against the Hamilton Tiger Cats. What's their mindset and do they have a chance?
1: They're playing against a 4-11 and team, so generally you would say they have a chance. What they have shown over the last few weeks has me pretty concerned about the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. If they couldn't get up for the game in Regina last week, I don't see them getting up for this game in Calgary. Neither of these teams seems to want to be in the playoffs at this point based on what they've done so far. This is the game that's going to really show if either of them have any life Calgary needs to win out and it needs to start this week. I'm taking them at home against the Riders.
0: Riders beat Calgary in overtime way back in June. The Stampeders went to Regina and on a last play field goal beat the Rough Riders. So the season series is 1-1 coming into this. I'm of the belief that the Riders are in disarray whether it's emotionally conceptually there's something wrong with this football franchise that needs to be cleaned out there was no move to get rid of the coach prior to this to try to change something to think outside the box as was suggested several times unless there's some dynamic that the players who were disgusted by their own performance last week find to say look we're better than this and we're going to do this because I don't see how this is going to work out and if Calgary at all gets a lead on the Rough Riders call it over because the Stampeders will walk on them Saturday, early. It's the Montreal Alouettes in Edmonton to take on the Edmonton Elks. The Elks are out of the playoffs, but they still have Trey Ford in their backfield at quarterback. Alouettes one and a half point favorites, basically a pick em game. Alouettes need to win to stay ahead of the Hamilton Tiger Cats. This is a huge game for them. Last year they went in, and with a late interception in the fourth quarter off of Taylor Cornelius, took it back to the house and won that football game. This is a real make it or break it type of situation for Montreal. A win here puts them in a really great spot. A loss does not.
1: Montreal has something to play for. They showed a lot of tenacity against the Ottawa Redblacks on Thanksgiving Monday. The Elks are playing for pride at this point. They're playing to get more experience for Trey Ford. He is going to have to be on his best to get past that Montreal Alouettes defense. I don't see it at this point. I think that defensively Montreal has enough to stymie Trey Ford. Got to love the Cody Fajardo versus Chris Jones matchup as well. We know Chris Jones had some remarks about Cody Fajardo and he didn't believe that he's necessarily a starting quarterback caliber player in the CFL. So, you got to think Cody's coming in with a little bit of a chip on his shoulder as well. I'm taking the Alouettes.
0: Montreal's defense is the linchpin to this process. They have looked really good lately. It's an afternoon game. Trey Ford is going to provide some real excitement, but I don't know if there's enough there from Edmonton to beat a highly motivated Alouettes team. Alouettes on the road, you wouldn't normally pick them, but in this case, I have to because Edmonton is playing for pride the Alouettes are playing for a home date. The final game is Saturday afternoon. And once again, we're <laughs> vexed by the odds makers because they don't want to put Toronto into the mix, at least not on a Tuesday night. So we're going to have to take a wild stab at it. I'm leaning towards Toronto by 13 and a half. You're picking Toronto by what? I, I
1: figured 12 and a half. I don't know if there's a spread that any odds maker is going to give that's going to be a a high enough spread in this one. We saw a couple of weeks ago, led by Cameron Dukes, Toronto gave Winnipeg all they could handle in Winnipeg. Ottawa, in a must-win game, managed one field goal late in the game against the Montreal Alouettes. These are two teams going in the opposite directions. I like the Argonauts big
0: at home. If Cameron Duke starts or Chad Kelly starts, the Argonauts are still going to dominate because that defense is just going to eat the Red Blacks alive. It wouldn't surprise me if the Argos defense scores again. This is huge for Ottawa to start playing for jobs and start playing for something to salvage from this season. However, the Argonauts who have clinched first place have showed no signs of slowing down. Give credit to Ryan Dinwiddie, Corey Mace. They have kept this team highly motivated given that undefeated home record. Two touchdowns. I don't see how Ottawa gets even within that. Thank you for listening to our show. Third Down Gamble is hosted on Podbeat and can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter at Third Down Gamble. Join us again, the Third Down Gamble podcast audio worth watching.
1: Third Down Gamble uses the expert resources provided by Canadian Football League player and game statistics for analytics game notes, and statistics, and 3downnation.com for news, insight, and in-depth analysis. Please visit cfl.ca and 3downnation.com for the most up-to-date information on the Canadian Football League.